0: So, to start off, it's always a good idea to explore a little bit uh, what's compelling about this practice. Why do it? And for Tina and I, having practiced in different traditions and learned a fair number of meditations, we find the concentration practice and believe that the Buddha practiced and taught it as a very uh, foundational practice. It's one that uh, have it, to have uh, even a small a developed practice in this is helpful when you go on to do Vipassana, Zen, Tibetan, uh, Christian, whatever your, your main meditation is, to have the concentration is really helpful. So it's something that we've really found a lot of value in and as we've been practicing it more and teaching it, that continues to be true. We see the value even more uh, in a more compelling way. Uh, this was a practice the concentration practices was one that the buddha uh, did as a first practice the stories are when he was a young child he did this quite naturally and later after leaving palace life and becoming a religious hermit he ended up coming back to this practice uh, then also this was the the uh, highest or sort of most evolved practice of the day so the buddha learned this and then went on to develop the uh, Vipassana practices of Buddhism. And what's particularly interesting is that this is the very last practice the Buddha did. So after his great enlightenment, and then he taught for, it's believed, something like 30 or 40 years, when he was dying, the concentration jhana practice was the very last practice he did in uh, the dying process. So that was something that also was impactful for Tina and I to learn about. And it's been a practice that's been around for a very long time. The uh, earliest writings on this practice are in the Yoga, Sutra, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is believed to be at least 5,000 years old in written form. And it was, uh, the scholars theorized that it was existing for many years, maybe thousands of years before it was written. So this has been around for a very long time, this practice. And we can read the Yoga Sutras and see a lot of the same types of points and practices as we're doing in Buddhism, and fundamentally, this is a kind of practice that is a, a very deep practice that calls to us, and it's it's the fundamental call that's been calling people to it for thousands of years. The fundamental questions of who am I, why am I here, and most specifically, what happens when I die, what happens next. So the real existential questions really call us to the kind of depth and mystery this practice can be a portal to.
1: So in addition to sort of seeing the Buddha as our role model for what did he do and and the fact that he practiced the practice we're going to be doing today throughout his whole life, even after he was fully enlightened, he continued to do this practice regularly. Um, There are from what we've seen, four sort of main reasons that one would do the practice to be more specific. And the first of those is serenity. And the word samatha can be translated as serenity or concentration. So it really encapsulates both of those things. And some of the people who come to this practice don't want to go on retreats. They want to use it as a daily practice. and that's absolutely fine. It's a great daily practice, especially for times in life when maybe things are a little chaotic or um, there's some agitation. This practice is um, designed to really create a stilling and a calming. And so we will do this practice sometimes for periods of time in our lives when we're going through something especially um, chaotic because it's an, it can be an antidote and really bring a lot of serenity into a person's life. The second reason is the concentration. So we'll talk later about what is concentration, but, but this practice um, helps us to cultivate the ability to stay with one object of our awareness for a longer and longer period of time without being distracted. And we live in a world now that is has a lot of distractions. I mean, the cell phones, the the media, the you know, the fast pace of the world that has changed a lot, even in the last 10 or 15 years. So the ability to concentrate is really um, a needed skill. And there's actually some brain research that's come out as to the effect on the brain of our fast-paced, changed, multitasking world, and um, there's some evidence to show that the capacity for concentration has weakened because that isn't being exercised as much maybe as it used to. So this practice can help us to really be able to concentrate on something from a practical sense when we need to. And then the the other two reasons are more on the they're on the more esoteric, more um, mystical side, and the first is what we call, and what was called in the ancient texts, purification of mind. So this practice is one that um, really allows the mind stream and the consciousness to. Um, We get to see the places where we have habitual thought patterns, and those can be purified over time to where our mind is more um, able to be in the present and to be less, to suffer less as a result of our compulsive um, habits of mind. And we'll, we'll talk later about what is purification of mind, but that for us is really one of the key reasons to do this practice. And then the last one is what we call thinning of the me. And this is a term that we have used um, that really gets at the heart of the deeper aspects of Buddhist practice, which is really um, the ability to be free from the way we normally know ourselves and to have our identification with the personality patterns that make up that way of seeing who we are, to have those thin. And when those thin, there's the potential for our deeper nature that's always there. We don't have to get it. It's always there, but it's covered over. And so as that thinning starts to happen, our true nature can be experienced more directly. And that's really the heart of what the Buddha was talking about in terms of why to even do the practice.
0: So it's helpful to understand where this practice fits into the Buddhist framework. And within Buddhism, there's three stages of practice that are interrelated. The first is Sila, what's translated sometimes as ethical behavior. We prefer the translation of wholesomeness or wholesome behavior. Because coming from a Judeo-Christian culture, The idea of ethics related to behavior can mean a lot of strictness and that's not so much what we're trying to be in contact with, but what's really wholesome for the situation for you is a lot better way we find to hold it. And one (coughs) of the definitions we've heard uh, Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters use is living in harmony without regret. So that's a really wonderful way to hold sila or ethical behaviors: living in harmony without regret. So that's the sort of baseline of Buddhist practice. Uh, Sila is is our behavior in the world and our sort of behavior with ourselves as well. And the next is the Samatha, which is what we're teaching. And that's the uh, area that's sometimes called tranquility, concentration, that kind of thing. And again, the the big title is purification of mind is over the Samatha. And then the final stage is uh, Vipassana. And the Vipassana is referred to as purification of view. So in the purification of mind, this is really a, uh, let's say, a refinement of the, this particular awareness of one. And it's more of an introspective practice. And the Vipassana more is an uh, ex- expression of you looking out, so it's a view of seeing uh, in the world, it's purifying the view of what we're seeing in the world, what we're engaging in the world. So the three fit together but it's uh, just important to see where the Samatha fits in here. So I want to explore a little bit more about Samatha and concentration. We teach it and view it as having two components and it has a transformational component. Tina talked about the thinning of the me, and there's a way that, that we as a personality can be uh, more refined we can by being with the object exclusion of all else it, there's a way we lose the same kind of uh, attachment to ourself that we have before so there's a way there's a whole uh, transformational body which Tina will talk about in a few minutes and the other is the transcendent and this is really again what Tina was referring to is as there's more of a settling uh, that in sort of a clearing, that true nature can shine through. It's like cleaning of the window, you know, and, and then the light can shine through more brightly. And it's important to hold it, that that light, that, that true nature is always present. So it's not something that we have to go get from anyone else or any place else. We're letting it have expression from within ourselves. And predominantly this is a practice very much of present moment practice. So we're settling with our breath in this very moment. So we're trying not to have our mind go to what's going to happen in the future or spend time what happened in the past. We're very much wanting to be with each breath. And that's the depth that we will engage in is in the present moment. So uh, again, we're focusing on one object, which is the breath. We're focusing on it in one particular location between the nostrils and the upper lip, which is a region for some people they find that it's a spot. So we sometimes call it the Anupana spot. For others, they somehow, uh, the awareness comes in a a way that's more of a region or more of the whole area. So either way is fine. Whatever is natural for you is perfectly fine. We don't follow the breath away from the body or into the body. So those of you that have been exposed to the Vipassana practices in particular probably have been encouraged or uh, suggested to be aware of the breath in the belly or elsewhere with the body. And we're asking you today to not do that, to just be aware of it outside the body in this Anapana region. So, one of the ways that we talk about this practice is like the toll takers that we have on the bridges here. And like the toll taker, we're in our booth and our object of perception is that window. And for that window, that's the Anapana region. And so all we're focused on is what's happening in that region. We don't care about anything else. We don't care about the cars that are not there and the cars that have left. We don't spend time thinking about the lunch hour. We just focus on what's right in front of us. And so like the toll taker, sometimes there's no cars. And for some people, sometimes they can't feel their breath. They can't feel an inhale, an exhale or both. And so if you were the toll taker and there were no cars, what would you do? You would wait. And so what's our instruction if you can't feel your breath? Wait. Just stay with it, and as the concentration develops and as it coheres as the mind unifies, you will become aware of the breath. We've seen it in a hundred percent of the time that that's been true. so if you just stay with it, that will develop.
1: So in looking then at what is concentration in this practice, what we're really doing is we're We're building a capacity and we'd like you to hold it that concentration is a natural faculty of your consciousness that's already there. And as we come back to this one object of awareness, which is the breath in this area over and over and over, what we find is that we can't stay with it all the time. We're going off and all of a sudden we're thinking and so on and that's fine. A lot of times people will think that something's wrong with that. But what that does, is it gives you the opportunity to come back to the breath. And that's like building a muscle. So um, it would be like if you go to the gym and you're exercising your body, this is exercise for the mind, you don't get a new muscle when you go to the gym, it's already there. But as you, you know, you may start out with five pounds and then over time, as you do more and more repetitions, you can lift more and more weight. And at some point, maybe you can lift 20 pounds and it doesn't even feel heavy anymore. So this is really what we're doing in this practice is building that capacity for concentration and for turning away from the normal stories that go on pretty much unconsciously unless a person meditates, we don't really see what's going on in our mind all the time. So when we're meditating, we get a chance to see that. So concentration then, it's a word we use in the English language normally, and that's kind of unfortunate because there tends to be a an um, assumption that con- when we're concentrating, we're striving. It's really hard, you know. I'm I'm driving in really heavy traffic. I better concentrate, you know, and so that feels kind of stressful or or as a kid, I have a test, You know, I gotta concentrate. So there's this idea that there's a lot of strain maybe that goes with it. And we'd like to ask you to just put that part of it aside. That's unnecessary in actually doing the practice. It does take a level of rigor and commitment, but we don't have to strain to do it. So there are three different levels of concentration then. And really what's happening here is the mind streams coming together. So we like to use the um, analogy of a flashlight. So as I go through the three, three levels of concentration, I'll sort of equate this to the different levels of coherence of the beam of a flashlight. And the three types are momentary concentration, access, and absorption. So momentary concentration is Um, when you're first starting with the object or on a retreat or in your daily sitting, and you may be with the breath for a period and then you're off. So you're with it sort of momentarily, but there isn't a lot of ongoing consistency. And also with So we're doing practice, all concentration practices, and there are many. Like the Buddha gave 40 different objects that you could use for meditation. And even in non-Buddhist meditation, um, like mantras, that's a concentration practice. You have one object you're returning to. That's one category of meditation. The other category is what's called momentary objects. So like Vipassana is a practice that has a momentary object because like if I was doing Vipassana, I might now hear my voice, and then I might notice where there's contact with the chair, and maybe I notice that I'm a little chilly. You know, so there's the object, the contents are different, but what's consistent among those is the present moment. So this is the difference between momentary objects and stable objects. So with a Vipassana, you also have momentary concentration. So both types have this level. Then the next um, level is access concentration, which is sometimes called neighborhood concentration because it's in the neighborhood of jhana, but it isn't actually a jhana. And there's a really wide, long range of what is possible with access concentration. In access concentration, we're starting to be with the object of our awareness for longer periods. So, maybe at first it's a few minutes, that probably would still be momentary. But say you're with the object for five minutes without substantially going off into thinking or something. Then you're at the very sort of lowest level of access concentration. And this can, so this is more like, let me go back to the flashlight. The the momentary is like a lantern where the light is just going out everywhere and one of those camping flashlights, you lift it up. If you push that flashlight down, then it'll be on a wide beam. So it's kind of all going in one direction, but there's still a wide beam where the light is. And this is really what's happening with access concentration is we're sort of, the mind stream's coming together some, but there's still distraction coming in, we're still going off of the object. Um, Over time, It can happen where we could be with our object of meditation for even 30 minutes. And that's still access concentration. So this is where, when you're at the high end of access concentration, it can be kind of confusing because it feels really different. I mean, we have students come to us on retreat, especially, who maybe have gone for long periods without thinking. And it really starts doing the thinning of the me. So access concentration is very valuable. We don't have to just have jhana arise for there to be a lot of um, effect on our consciousness. But it's still not jhana. So just this is where it's helpful to have a teacher who really knows the difference and who can distinguish because it's not that easy to do oneself. And this is also one of the beauties of um, how Pau teaches it with his rigorous study of all of the texts and so on, that we can actually tell what's happening in this practice. It's not a mystery. We can tell as teachers what's happening for you and give guidance that can be helpful. So then the last stage is absorption. And when access concentration, that is also available with both stable object, what we're teaching here today, as well as momentary. When you get up to full absorption, you can't reach a full absor- absorption with a momentary concentration practice like Vipassana. So in a practice like Vipassana, what's great is that you're learning how to be with the present moment without a, a tra- attachment to it, without wanting it to continue or without aversion. So something really important is being cultivated there. We're not saying that because absorption isn't possible that it's not as valid. It's just what's happening is different. So this is one of the benefits of undertaking concentration meditation is that you have the possibility to go to a a different level of concentration than you have with momentary practices. So um, it's easy to confuse the two without a teacher. And in a full absorption, one of the things that's important to know about it is that a full jhana absorption is a non-dual state. So what we mean by a non-dual state is that um, there is a temporary ceasing or a, a collapsing between a sense of me, of observer and observed. So the dualistic state that we're normally in of I'm a me and then everything else is separate, that collapses. So there's a real potency to the possibility of a non-dual state arising. And um, this is really where the purification of mind can come from both sides, like Stephen was talking about the transformational. So we have to be pretty able to turn away from our normal personality conditioning in order for a full jhana absorption to arise and for high level of access too. Um, but the transfer, the transcendent, so the aspect of the practice that is coming from the mystery, you know, there's an aspect of this practice as we're orienting towards this mystery that's manifesting you, right now, as you're sitting here and all of everything you see in the world, that same mystery is causing your breathing. So this is really where the the purification of mind from the transcendent side in a full jhana absorption is potent because it's like there's nothing. The personality veiling that is normally between you and that direct experience is Temporarily not present. and there are other non-dual states like in Zen, which you know the word Zen actually came from the word jhana, but in Zen, they don't actually do this practice anymore. Zen's just trying to go directly for the non-dual state. They're skipping sort of any levels of you know going through concentration. with Zen though, it's it has to be just spontaneous. So the advantage to a practice like this is Once somebody has, once there's more of an open channel in the consciousness, it's more likely, it's not guaranteed, but it's more likely that if you'd come to do the practice again, you can repeat up to wherever you previously left off. So it's a little bit more, um, uh, it's more delineated. I mean, I think that was one of the things when you were attracted to it. There's a way we're with this. It's very concrete what the stages are. So that's a full jhana absorption. Is we can't make it happen at the beginning. You can't one day sit down and say, okay, now I'm going to have a jhana arise. It's something that only happens when the level of our consciousness becomes uh, at the same level of vibration as the jhana. And then it's like your consciousness just pops right in. So this is where the thinning really has to happen to a certain level for that to be possible. We can't will it with the me, because if I'm willing it with the me, is a non-dual state possible? Yeah. So you see, it becomes this catch-22 where it's like, I'm gonna get into the jhana. The more that's happening, the less likely in some ways it is to arise. So
0: and, and part of when that comes up, what we see on retreats is, that's what's present for purification is the right. attachment that I want jhana. Right. And, w- and that has to be worked through to the point when there's more neutrality, more openness for that, as Tina said, for the awareness to really naturally cohere to the vibrational level of the absorption. Right.
1: So those are the three levels then of concentration, momentary access and absorption. So I think, wow, we're we're ahead of schedule. You know, I want good. to say one other thing, sure. just,
0: just that uh, in our perspective, the purification of mind is available both in the access concentration and absorption concentration yeah. because both are, uh, are working on the purification of the personality material as well as orienting more towards the mystery, towards the transcendent. So these are both happening in both of those levels of concentration.
1: So we'll t- have some time for questions now.
0: And there is a mic, so if you can wait for the mics so yes, to be recorded, that would be helpful. Yes, please. We would like
1: to uh, have them recorded. Cynthia.
2: Yeah, I was curious um, if when you reach that non-dual state, Is it a gradual process or is it, um, does it arise in a gradual way or is it pretty threatening and scary?
1: (laughs) Good question. Are those
0: the two options, (laughs) gradual or scary?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or something in between?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. the, The process of going through the stages of concentration for most people is a fairly gradual process because there's... a unifying and there's a returning to the meditative object, the breath, so we're lessening the grip of our, our stories and our patterning. So that's part of that transformational aspect. But the actual arising of jhana is very uh, spontaneous. That's not something that we probably wouldn't say it's gradual in the same way if we step through to the next room, uh, are we stepping through gradually? At what point are we in different rooms? So there is, there is that. Um, There is a delineation point that that does happen. Um, We will say for most people, the first experience is usually quite short uh, because it is a lot of, it's new, there's a lot of uh, pure consciousness engaging, both from our side, us being pure consciousness, and then, say, the universal pure consciousness because there's a, a merging that can be pretty dynamic and impactful.
1: And it's, it's really a great point you bring up about the fear. And this is where what we'll see is that as people, as the thinning of the me is happening and people are less in contact with their normal patterns and thinking mind, usually the deeper patterns start reasserting themselves more and more, which we'll talk about the hindrances later, but every almost everybody has a territory that they encounter where it starts getting pretty clear that the practice is doing me, that I'm not doing the practice, the practice is doing me and things are happening that I'm not making happen and that there's, some, there's a mystery that's really powerful and that there's a surrender. Mm. And so as we approach that threshold, um, there can be fear because it's a surrendering of what we've known ourselves to be. And even though it's temporary, I mean, like Stephen said, the first time it might happen for three seconds, you know, and that's enough. And the, the good thing is our consciousness has a self-limiter on it because the personality will come back up and reassert itself to get us out of there. So it's, there's a way where this is why practices like forcing the kundalini open and other things can leave people in a pretty, um, not everyone, but in a way that it sort of got forced open. And with this, it's, that isn't really possible. You know, There's a way where this is where the consciousness will just be at the same level. And then if there's too much fear, then it'll go back down. Mm-hmm. OK. Thanks. So, but yeah, it's a really good question. And this is part of where we see the value of the practices, that we get a chance to be with that and to feel what it's like to, um, to maybe be without the me or to have it thin in a way that we can kind of get used to it gradually.
0: And there's a certain quality of ripening that happens you yeah. know, through that progression of concentration. So we're trying to communicate that as well. It's, it, it would be extremely rare for someone to really bypass all of that and have the absorption arise. Yeah. I wouldn't say it couldn't happen, but, but it's extremely rare. For most people, there is a ripening and there's a... Contraction around personality, like Tina said, or fear or or excitement. And so we kind of move back down the concentration scale and then come back up. Yeah.
1: Is there an application of this uh, practice outside of the retreat setting? Absolutely, yeah. We have, at, when we first started teaching, we did um, a monthly sitting group here in San Rafael, and we had people who came to that group who never had any intention of going to a retreat ever, and um, a few of the people that hadn't even meditated before. So, and I remember one woman who was clear about what her interest was and, and came religiously through all the sessions and was practicing, and she found great benefit in her, her daily life even in her relationship with her partner. and um, So this is what we were saying earlier about the serenity and the concentration are two aspects that are available even at a level of momentary or low access concentration.
0: But just like with the other Buddhist practices, the Zen practice, Tibetan and Vipassana practice, you're probably not going to have the very um, experiences in a home practice if you're meditating 30 minutes a day that kind of thing probably mm-hmm. those aren't going to be available to you in the same way that probably uh, the jhana absorption is is not going to be available in a home practice sitting for 30 minutes a day that would be right. extraordinary
1: uh, yeah in our minds that we could say pretty much Oh, we wouldn't say 100%, but it's extremely <laughs> unlikely Nine. that the jhana absorption would arise. But it's the same thing with vipassana. One isn't going to become uh, have an attainment of become a stream-enterer in vipassana doing just a daily practice, probably. It's going to require retreat. So, But there's still
0: value in the home practice. We, there's totally we value. We see it. We have yeah. students that use it daily. Um, and it is. It's that cohering of the mind, the unifying, and the peacefulness that comes
2: with that. So, um, as far as the technique goes, when I'm uh, focusing on this area, I'm feeling the circulation in the blood, not so much the breath, I think. So, is it instruction to avoid uh, or still seek the sensation of the breath rather than the circulation? And I have been... It's been suggested to me that um, I tend to feel just my rhythms in my body and just like a cranial sacral rhythm. And I, the word is suggested that I absorb easily with that more so than the breath. And so I didn't know if there's a, a practice, if that's recommended, <clears throat> or if I should still, still really focus on this technique, even though I can't have a natural inclination to just sort of feel like an ocean or something. And Mm -hmm. also another question is, is there a relationship between these states and maybe a dream state that transitions into maybe a transcendental state or spontaneous experiences? Mm
1: -hmm. Something. (laughs) So yeah, this is the first, with the first question. um, If you You know, it's your practice, so you get to decide what you want to do. For the practice in this um, lineage, it won't progress to jhana unless you do these instructions. So if that isn't important, um, you can use other objects. If you're doing a mindfulness of the body which is more what it sounds like, the craniosacral vibrations, if you use that as your object, that would be more of a vipassana, which is fine if that's what you are drawn to. We, we really encourage people to follow their own heart and their practice. But it's not the same as this, so just to distinguish the two.
0: And, and your point is important that it, it, it won't develop. It can develop into access concentration as every medica- meditation can, but absorption won't be available.
1: Right. And then in terms of the um, other kinds of experiences, there is, we'll talk about this later with sinking mind, there is um, one of the, are we, are we talking about sinking mind? Yes, we oh, are. Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. So we'll save that, but um, there are different things that can arise like as concentration deepens, but maybe aren't, we aren't as alert. Sometimes the, the alertness can lag behind and we can kind of get into a dreamy state. That's pretty pleasant but it's not actually um, as helpful. And you know, before I knew about what sinking mind was, I would be in this state a lot because my concentration's good and my energy tends to lag if I don't do something about it. So um, so there are sort of territories we can get into in meditation that are kind of dreamlike. Um, I don't know if those necessarily lead to other kinds of spiritual experiences, but. You know, with any meditation practice, the possibility of um, spiritual experiences is present, that they could, that something can arise spontaneously that's kind of outside of um, the normal progression. And, you know, that would be something to work with your teacher on if it comes up to really understand what it meant to you and, and something about it. I think there was a question over here.
0: This lady over here.
3: Thank you. Um, so sometimes in my concentration practice, I'll slip into kind of the non-duality absorption that you guys are talking about. But I'll still have like, I won't be in a 30-minute session without thought content.
0: Can, can you step forward a little bit? You're right, right right there by the speaker. You're getting Sorry about that. That. Yeah. Um, Is it
3: possible to kind of have the different stages blend and meld a little bit?
0: Can you say more about blend and meld?
3: So uh, just in my sitting practice and uh, doing concentration practice, all the experiences where I'll slip into kind of that non-dual state that you mm-hmm. guys are talking about, But I'm not in a state of concentration where I can go without thought content for 30 minutes or so.
0: Yeah, so there are a variety of non-dual experiences we can have access to. This is one particular one. So it's certainly possible to have a non-dual experience where the the self-referencing lightens or even disappears for a period of time. And maybe even the the contact with the body, the body boundaries might... Uh, become very soft within our experience, but the, this is a very particular experience. that absorption is one quality of that is non-dual. Mm. There's other qualities of it as well. Uh, so,
1: right, um, like you know, some of you may have sat with Adya Shanti, who teaches at Spirit Rock a few times a year, and, and elsewhere in the Bay Area, and other non-dual teachers. And um, concentration isn't always. Mandatory to have a non-dual experience. So, but a jhana absorption is is a different. The concentration is a component of it. So, um, and usually that doesn't just spike up. That's something as we were saying earlier that really has to develop over time. It's kind of like a pot boiling. Mm-hmm. And this is why I like to do try and do concentration meditation as a daily practice, expecting jhana. You know, you're sitting for, even if you sit for an hour a day and then for the other, you know, 14 hours you're conscious or whatever, you got the, the lid of, off the pot. It just, it's really hard for to, to the concentration to develop to a level of jhana um, arising. But other non-dual states are possible. Thank you. Yeah. Way in the back.
0: Uh, she, he's got the mic.
2: Are you able to say um, what,
1: how this non-dual state, the value of this non-dual state, or the qualitative difference from other non-dual states from other practices? Mm -hmm. yeah so with this we'll talk about purification of mind later and that really will give more of a sense of um, what we feel is really happening in the Samatha practice Um, there's an intensity to it that is different than some other kinds of non-dual states and also because the concentration is a factor it's possible to um, as one becomes, as the mind stream becomes more purified to have that state arise for longer and longer periods of time. Whereas, I mean, this is why like in doing a practice like Rigpa, which is part of the Dzogchen, it's an open-eyed practice. So you're, it's a momentary practice. But if one doesn't have concentration, one can't do Rigpa because you might have it arise for one second and then, and then it kind of falls apart. So, so this is really where the concentration allows for the continuity of that state to um, go on longer and longer. And also, because this practice, it's an eyes-closed practice, it's very um, interior. We're withdrawing our senses from the surroundings. It's really orienting us towards the unconditioned and towards the formless. The mystery you know that mystery that we spoke of—that's manifesting all of this. We're really withdrawing and away from um, our form selves, and there's the possibility of penetrating into the formless. And I realize I forgot to use my third flashlight um, analogy, which is that the purified mind stream in a full jhana absorption is like a laser. So now we have this wider beam and we bring it down to a very narrow beam. And uh, we did some research on lasers when we first started teaching. And lasers are made of light and they can actually cut through metal. So imagine your consciousness concentrated to a level like that, what it's possible to penetrate that you wouldn't normally be able to do. So that's the difference between a jhana and other kinds of non-dual states.
2: Hi. Will you be stating specifically what, uh, what one would experience in like the first few jhana states? how they differ, what the, the generalized experience is.
0: We'll speak to the, some of the aspects of that. Uh, we don't speak to it fully, because in part that's part of the quality control that we maintain. So on retreat, when people report about absorption, there's aspects that we, we don't speak about and no one speaks about that we can then confirm. But we'll talk about some of that today. Up here.
2: I had a question about the instruction. You spoke about um, the difference between Vipassana when you're, you're experiencing the whole breath versus just the external breath. Is there a difference in the instruction about um, how you bring your thoughts back, like labeling, labeling your thoughts if you are getting distracted? Is that the same instruction?
1: Good question. We'll talk some later about the differences between the two, but um, no, you don't actually label. So the the noting is one of the differences. With this practice, there is um, one tool that one can use, which we'll give you the instruction for on the next sitting, which is the counting. So counting in this, you're you're counting... um, up to one to eight, and then back down eight to one. So it's like in, out, one. Just really light in the pause in between the breaths. And that's used as a support, the way noting is used as a support in Vipassana. And then when it gets to where you don't need that anymore, you can drop that. So we'll, we'll give the full instruction for that a little bit later. But um, the noting in this practice, because one of the potentials with the serenity is that thought can really stop or be at bay for you know, extended periods. It's uh, using any kind of internal verbalization really kind of gets in the way of that. So we found that it's not normally done with a practice like this. So,
0: so anything that's happening internally or externally other than the breath we use as a reminder to return to the breath.
1: Right, and really, the, the what's important about um, when we're off of the breath, when we notice that we've strayed, is to really be kind to ourselves. In coming back, we don't need to scold ourselves or beat ourselves up or have judgments. Just be glad that you noticed and come back. That's it.
0: Gentleness, very yeah. important.
1: Very, very gentle. And um, every time you do that, your that muscle is getting stronger.
0: The muscle of concentration develops. Right. Yep. And also it's believed that every time you return to the, the breath, there's a little bit of purification of mind happening because you're choosing the breath over the content of your experience in your mind.
1: Right. It's deconditioning, really. It's like we sometimes on retreat, this is really obvious, where you can see that there's, a, there's kind of a, 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 a groove of thinking that's we've run over a million times in our minds, maybe not even being that aware of it, and all of a sudden we're meditating, we get aware. If you pull out of that groove on purpose, it deconditions that groove. So this is really where um, every time we we're we're like re- we're getting a software upgrade. You know, you're you're overriding the old program.
0: So this is U 2.0.
1: Right. <laughs> There's we're a question, question here. Up here. In
0: front. Yeah. Question.
3: Thanks. Um, the meditation I've done for a long time, I've always focused on the breath in the Hara, Zen mm-hmm. from Zen, mm-hmm. and now you're really focusing us here. So I'm trying to understand why I should make this big shift.
0: Well, it, it's a different meditation, so it's it's really uh, like driving different a stick shift or an automatic. They both have value, but they're different. And so, so in this, so med- what's the
3: value? Of-
0: well, the, it's a very specific practice that, like with Zen, when I was a Zen student, I'd tell people I felt like I was a hot air balloon captain. I knew how to get in the air, but where I went I never knew, or when I, where I was going to land I never knew. And with this practice, there's a very um, discernible progression. Even though each of us is different, there's still an overall pra- practice progression that happens. So by doing this practice, we're developing the concentration in a very specific way and part of the reason we use this object is because it's hard. It's easier to do the belly or the hara. So this, with have to concentrate more. So the minds unify more, which lets us enjoy some of the benefits of concentration, the serenity, tranquility, and we go deeper. So it's, and it, as Tina said, it leads to the access concentration and absorption where the belly, the hara, won't lead to absorption ever. No matter how good you are at it, 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 it can't lead to absorption.
1: So, and also, we, I, we don't usually talk about this on a, at a day long, we talk about it on retreat, but there's a whole progression, which is in our book, of the practice that if one isn't using this object, that just won't happen. So,
0: so, so first, John, it can't arise with breath at the belly.
1: Right. Yeah, so we're not saying, you know, like when I do Vipassana, I use the belly, I don't use the breath here. So we're not saying there's anything wrong with using the breath at the belly for other practices that are momentary. But um, it's just not what's done in this practice. You know, it's like if you look at all the practices out there, they're all doing something in particular. Just like if we're exercising, there's cardio, there's weightlifting, there's Pilates, there's yoga. They're all doing something and they're all good, but they're not doing exactly the same thing. But like, if I'm going to be running, I'm still, my muscles are still going to get stronger. If I'm weightlifting, I'm still developing some cardio improvement. So there's a little bit of overlap, but they're they're sort of targeting slightly different things.
3: Well, I know for serenity and calming, I, for serenity and calming, I think the har is very good mm-hmm. for
0: that.
1: Any meditation is going to be inclining one towards serenity. Good. So,
0: Because remember, all the, every meditation has momentary and access concentration. Mm-hmm. So the axis is going to axis concentration is going to afford us a certain amount of tranquility, no matter how what we're doing. But it's just there, there's just a limit on what we can do with it. So
3: for the jhanas, the heart doesn't work? It doesn't work. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's a momentary object just like it is in Vipassana.
0: Yeah. Why don't we take our break here?
1: Yeah. So this would be a good point to break. So, um... Will take, oh. take fifteen oh. minutes.
2: Yeah,
0: fifteen minutes. And before you leave, before you go, as you're no, no, no. going throughout the break, this is an opportunity for you to be with the breath as it's crossing in the Anapana region. As you get it from your seat and you walk and do whatever you're doing, see if you can maintain some contact there.
1: And it will be a silent break, too. We'll see you in 15 minutes.
2: Will
0: you take a question? I was just about to raise my hand.
2: Hi. Okay. Um, um, I so let just practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.